Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to this is The Final Word, Season 15, Episode 5. It's in the middle of the World Cup. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. I'm still in Lucknow, about to head towards Chennai. Adam, I'm uh, looking at you in London. We spoke to each other not that long ago while I was hanging around outside the stadium after the Australia-Sri Lanka game. But this is the weekly show. There will be a bit of World Cup stuff on it. We'll be talking to Daniel Bredig and Anand Vasu about some pieces they've written during the week. Um, there'll be some, some other, some very niche statistical stuff going on as well that we'll get to momentarily. And uh, there's a fair bit of, there's Australian domestic cricket to wrap up. There are a, a number of other things we'll get through on the weekly show today as we tend to wander from place to place. But first of all, hello to you. Hello to you. Yes, Olympics as well for about the 10th week in a row because it's actually happening this time. We'll come to that in the end. Australia's yeah. women uh, hosting the West Indies in the last couple of one days. So a pretty busy show, as you say, in the middle of the World Cup. We weren't expecting to do a lot of World Cup stuff in these weekly shows, but as it's turned out, the issues around the tournament warrant further discussion and interrogation. So we'll, we'll use some time in segment two for that, but with uh, yeah, other bits and bobs either side of it. Something like that. Yeah, we might as well start with a reflection on the referendum result in Australia over the last few days. I know that a lot of people who listen to the show will have been very deeply engaged with that, a pretty deflating, uh, not not unexpected. We thought that it was going to tank. That's the way that signs were pointing, but it makes you feel pretty flat when something that was a pretty basic, pretty simple, um, pretty fundamentally good thing got 
hijacked by a bunch of dickheads who <laughs> wanted to destroy something for the sake of their own political boosting and, well, it's worked for them and uh, it sucks when you see bad people getting what they want. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't controversial until November last year. In fact, when the opposition leader came out and said that they wouldn't support it, that was seen as a, a big political misstep. But And look, the, the politics of this are complicated and layered and, uh, you know, we didn't get into too much of that other than to say that there is a very similar blood splatter with the electoral result here to what there was in 1999 with the failed Republican referendum. So the closer you are to a to a CBD, you, the, the more likely it is that you voted yes. And I only mention that to acknowledge that there are like these crippling cost of living pressures in the outer suburbs. And I think that what is being learnt from the qualitative research is that many voters out there are like, why is this even remotely relevant right now? Whereas the conversation around Indigenous reconciliation is always relevant, but those two things were unreconciled, to use a word that's been used uh, quite a bit in the last few days, or irreconcilable differences between mm. the black population of Australia and, and the and the non-black population, which I'm not sure if I'm as, as strident as that. But what I do know is that I was gutted when this happened. I, I was actually quite deflated when going to the ballot box at Australia House to vote on this, knowing that the probability of it getting up was so low, yet there was so much goodwill from those who wished it to get up and um, mm. you know, the probability from all the polling was that it was going to get whipped and so it did, losing in every state, losing the national majority. The double majority required to get referenda up in Australia, which always proves problematic even when it seems straightforward. So I'm not sure what this all means, Jeff. I, I suppose um, it'll, it'll, it'll mean that there needs to be other ways or other devices or other levers pulled to try and mm. integrate uh, Indigenous voices into Indigenous policymaking. That's the cruel irony in all of this. The only thing being asked was to enshrine within the constitution something that couldn't be taken away again. The actual construct could mould from government to government. It was within the gift of any government to change the way it does its business. But having this in there to always be a reference point was all that was being asked. And I don't know, maybe that was the problem, that it was too broad and that it was um, not specified enough what was actually being put to the people. And I know people will say, why are you talking about this on a cricket show? I think it does have a relevance. We've talked a lot about Australian cricket's um, long and very poor relationship with Indigenous Australians, um, the, the non-existence of that relationship for a long period of time, the uh, exclusion of Aboriginal players from cricket for you know, over a century, really from the, the late 1800s through until the 1990s. So there is some relevance there and Cricket Australia have made good strides in the last 10, 15 years to, to try to rectify that. So there's, in some ways, that's it's, it's reflective that the broader population wasn't prepared to make the sort of moves that we've seen even conservative organisations like Cricket Australia make in the last decade or so. And I don't know, it, it's... There is something, there's a certain kind of tragic people in Australia who will say Australia is super racist, incredibly racist, the most racist country in the world. Generally, I think that those people are not hugely well-travelled because, you know, racism is pernicious and violent and ugly in so many countries. I don't think Australia is a special case, but I think Australia, the broader relationship between non-Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Australians is the most pointed bit of our racism. Mm. I think that generally we've made moves in the right direction when it comes to racism between white Australians and migrant Australians over the years. Things have improved. They're not solved, but they have generally trended in the right direction. But 
that particular racism against Indigenous Australians is still the most virulent, the least questioned, the most widespread. And there's also a lot of racism towards Indigenous Australians from migrant Australians as well. It's not just a white Australia issue. It's a, you know, there, there tends to be a, an attitude from a lot of people of, well, why, why, is, why should that group get special consideration when my group doesn't? And so it's more complicated than the old bad white country kind of idea, which is where it starts, but I don't think that's where it finishes up. And I think it's more acute again because it's the indigenous population it's the the settlement after the colonizers arrived it was so bloody and brutal over such a long stretch of time that that's why this lengthy period of reconciliation has been required over well over decades now um i've sort of speculated that this might have had more success had it been put up in 1993, not 2023. And I think that reflects yeah. the um, the deterioration in this conversation. Social media is part of that. There are a host of other factors, but my instinct is that in the mid-90s, Australia had, had recognised to a major extent the crimes of the past and now that's more contested space possibly. And the balkanisation of the political debate more generally where people rush to the extremities, the, the, the middle ground is isn't where much competition lies it seems these days it's it's trying to motivate those at the, the the extremes of the debate so when the prime minister said on election night last year that they'd be advancing this at referendum and there'd be um, support of the Uluru statement from the heart which was a a, a, a community-led process by the indigenous elders and so forth that didn't seem again controversial because it felt like well that's just a natural thing that a political party coming into government would commit to doing but yeah naturally there's a lot of monday mo- monday morning quarterbacking after a political failure like this and, and thus the the core issue tends to get lost across the the polls and the numbers and the electorate breakdowns and so on but yeah at the zoomed out level um there'll be a lot of people who listen to this show and and those who don't but have a relationship with members of the indigenous community who will be absolutely gutted and and can't quite work out how this has happened let's uh, get on to some niche cricket scorecard areas (laughs) because that is a thing that we also do on this show um now there, there was so one of these scorecards went around quite a bit during the week the argentina versus chile women's series t20 international a series that was going on because Argentina set the world record score. I, I say that with a little asterisk because a fair bit of that came. It was donated by Chile. Now, they made 427 runs in a 20-over innings without hitting a six, which is extraordinary in itself. Mm. And a fair bit of that was down to a single over that cost 52 runs. <laughs> um, how did that happen, you might ask? 52 runs, uh, 17 no balls in that over. Florencia Martinez was the, the the poor bowler sending them down. And I sympathise, right? I've bowled 15 ball overs before. It's not a good time. We got a little bit of intel here via Nick Friend, who's got some contacts in that part of the world, who said that um, a lot of it was were, were double bounces right. that were then scored from and there were some that were missing the pitch as well that were called no balls so 17 no balls in the over which means it's a 23 ball over 52 runs scored from it Chile a pretty inexperienced team seven players on debut they did make 63 in reply so so they weren't that bad but they were a lot worse in their next game and Mm. this is more more in our area of interest Andrew Nixon pointed this one out so Chile 19 all out in their I think it was the, the following match to lose by 281 runs Eight ducks, 15 extras. <laughs> extras made up 78.95% of the total. And his question to us was, can extras score a Bannerman 
in going past set of 67.35%. I say they can. Well, they've nearly done a Glenn Turner, haven't they? What's, what's Glenn Turner's yeah, uh, percent? 80, 80, 83, was yeah, it? Low 80s, something, something like, like that. that. So, yeah, yeah I, I like it. It's a new variation on the Bannerman. Andrew Nixon's always across uh, these things. So, uh, yeah, it does stand out when there are scorecards like this, doesn't it? And it does generate plenty of attention. I, I get there's an ongoing debate around whether um, games like this should have international status. And I know Andrew's on one side of that debate and fair enough he makes his argument persuasively but there has been this ongoing back and forth about um, games of cricket between like genuine amateurs uh, against those who have got more established setups and yeah I, I mean I know I absolutely appreciate and respect why the ICC made the decision they did in 2018 but it does stand out in weeks like this. All right, we're also going to have a look at net run rate because, my goodness, there's been a lot of chat about net run rate. Every time a side is chasing, should they be trying to do it in 35 overs? Which teams will be separated by net run rate at the end? Can we work out how to do it, which we still can't? It's basically too confusing, even though we've been covering cricket for all of this time. If you sat me down and asked me to calculate a team's net run rate with a gun to my head, I don't think I'm making it out of that room. But some people can do it. Some people can figure it out. You can sort of do it with the basics, but then when you start getting like rain reduced matches and overs chalked off and all the rest of it but you've been having some correspondence mm. about a a flaw in the system that hasn't yet proved to be decisive but could be decisive itself. Yeah, yeah, right. So I'm going to say one of the smartest people in cricket got in touch with me. I'm not going to say who it was. I don't want to get him in trouble. But he's been listening to our program and our debates around net run rate in the last couple of weeks since the World Cup started because, you know, net run rate when it was – brought in in the early 90s, was seen as a way of incentivizing teams to play more aggressive cricket. I know that it's a tiebreaker. I know that it factors in the fielding innings as well, obviously. But the way it was interpreted, the way it was sold, is probably the better way of putting it. It was sold as a way of encouraging more enterprising play. But the way it's used now is to mitigate damage. And, and even indeed when a side's winning, it's about, right, if we pump a side here and we really go for it and we disregard wickets lost, it could ha- could improve our position in the event of a big loss later in the tournament. Mm. We saw Australia do that yesterday when we're recording this on, on a Tuesday morning UK time before the next game starts, which is the nature of these um, podcasts at the moment. We're squeezing them in whenever there's not World Cup fair. But um, Australia knew they needed to thump Sri Lanka once they're in a position to do so because of what happened to their net run rate against South Africa, which they controlled to some extent, and India in their first game. So the example that you and I have used before, Jeff, and our correspondent did as well, was in Auckland in 2015 when New Zealand played Australia. And uh, New Zealand ended up chasing down Australia's 140-odd, let's call it. Australia One, 152, I think it was. I reckon Australia made 151 and they're 152 for nine when Williamson hits a six down the ground. Right, and that's all over in the 25th over, I think, of the chase. So the whole game was over in the space of 50-odd overs, a compelling game of cricket. But Williamson hits the six and thus all is good and well in terms of the net run rate, okay? No one really suffers mm-hmm. from that. Australia suffer from it because they were bowled out inside 25 overs, but New Zealand don't, right? Had New Zealand been bowled out rather than winning the game, they would have been slaughtered on that run rate as well, even though the game was incredibly close based on wickets. Right. So the point here is is that being bowled out and run rate isn't the overall guide that we use these days in modern cricket for whether a side is close or not. We have a measure for that. It's called the Duckworth-Lewiston par score. We, we have a measure that builds in all sorts of bits and bobs into the algorithm in relation to wickets lost, and in, and in relation to time left, effectively, when a, shot, when a side's batting second. So why not use that? So the, the simple 
example used here, if Team B is chasing and overhauls the target, then you look at the Duckworth-Lewis pass score when they passed it and see how far up they were at the time so that you take that as a plus or a minus and you move it forward like goal difference in football. So if you were, you know, 27 behind or 27 ahead, that will be the measure that we use at the end of each game to decide what a side has taken from it to use later on rather than net run rate because DLS, net DLS, shall we say, is what we have agreed as a game is good enough to determine games when rain's involved. So why not for tie breaks as well? Is, does that does that make sense the way I'm explaining it? I, I think so. I think I vaguely get it. But the only, and I don't know if this works because I'm bad at maths, but I'm just thinking if you have super high scoring games versus super low scoring games, doesn't that mean that there's a much bigger margin in terms of Duckworth-Lewis, in terms of how far you might be ahead or behind the score and that therefore there'd be there would be some games that would that would be a close finish but would only net a team a very marginal gain versus you know if you're chasing 150 versus if you're chasing 350 that kind of thing right like maybe a team deserves the extra bump if they chase a bigger score but it still um, would measure but in relative terms it would still measure how how you fared that day i think is yeah. the point like it would right. it would give you a number that reflects how far you've won or lost by when it's all said and done, yep. when that final delivery is sent down. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there are flaws in this and people will pick them out and people who are far smarter than you and me will get into mm. us for even advancing such a thing. But, look, it, it's an emblem of where – or it's, it, it typifies where the game is not satisfied with net run rate anymore. It's not working in the way that it was designed. It's being – it's far too big a part of the conversation. Every single game that I'm doing and you're doing, Jeff – there, there reaches a right. point where we start thinking about net run rate. And that's a tiebreaker yeah. for probably one spot. And it may not even come to that, yet so much of our attention is driven towards this this tiebreak measure in practice. Mm. So, yeah, hopefully um, this is the last tournament where it plays such a big role. And, and it, whether it's this or something else, that, that we move beyond it, given the way the game's evolved. It's usually a factor at some point, um, even if it, it's usually a thing that could separate the team trying to qualify for fourth, even if it doesn't quite end up yeah. doing it. I think New Zealand at the 2019 World Cup didn't end up needing the net run rate boost, but they could very well have ended up level on points with, was it Pakistan who came in fifth? Mm. I think, but that's just from memory at this stage. The uh, the Afghanistan-England game, a lot. Of, I've enjoyed a huge amount of um, debate online about whether it was the biggest upset ever at a World Cup or not. One of those completely pointless arguments about whether, uh, you know, Ireland-Pakistan was bigger in 2007. Personally, my argument, if you've got a team that has never played a match at home and will probably never play a match at home, mm. even though they are a good team with some good players, I think that still makes it count for something against the reigning world champions. But uh, And th- this, this lovely note from Nick Friend, who we mentioned before, that England was the 43rd country that Mohamed Nabi had beaten in an international <laughs> cricket match, starting with wins over Bhutan, the Maldives, China and Argentina, then progressing to, to this high point of knocking off the reigning champs at a World Cup. As Harsha said, the Afghanistan story is remains the greatest story, a cricketing story of the 21st century. Uh, the fact that Nabi was there all yeah. the way at the very start as a teenager when they were playing you know, Division 10 or whatever it was, when they mm. only just received what was then called ICC affiliate membership, then it became associate membership, then a full member, of course, in 2018. Nabi's been there for all of this and he's 
I think he's about our age or, you know, might be late 30s, something yeah. like that. Still doing his thing. Played a role in that game against England where Spin Big took role. nine of the ten wickets, I, I think it was, and Naby took three or four, two or three of them. He took two, yeah, but he was, he was going at two and a half and over right. the overs that he right. bowled. So he really put the squeeze on. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Like it's, it's the best story and it's the most tragic story in a lot of ways with that destruction of their women's program yep. and, and the destruction of the lives of all women in Afghanistan over the last couple of years, um, which didn't come up in a lot of the coverage, I'll tell you that. Respect to Alison Mitchell, who's one of the broadcasters who does keep bringing it up, but a lot of, well, there there's certainly wasn't um, wasn't mentioned on the ICC broadcast, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I mentioned, I sent Ali our segment from the other day when we were discussing the potential uh, difficulty that Australia will find itself in later in the tournament if they, well, you know, we, we've explained it on the, the Daily Show, but in summary, they, they said at the start of the year they couldn't possibly play Afghanistan. They couldn't possibly play Afghanistan for its record since run by the Taliban with girls and women is so despicable, quite right, that Australia couldn't play them in a bilateral series, that it was inconveniently timed, that it was around the IPL, that players were knackered and so on after India. Let's forget all of that. It was the it was only that cited, Afghanistan's record mm. on, on human rights in, in essence, and that still remains so. I'm sure the get-out-of-jail-free card and Ali and I have agreed as much will be that, oh, well, it's an ICC tournament. We couldn't possibly have any agency here. But I don't think that's true either. I mean, Australia um, chose not to play in Colombo in 1996. Spot on. Uh, there were teams that didn't go to Kenya and to Zimbabwe in 2003. England didn't play in Zimbabwe in 2003 and the world kept turning. I, I mean, I know the world has changed since then and the commercial realities are such that Cricket Australia would never want to piss off the BCCI to that extent because that's what it comes down to, right? It's nothing to do with India, but it's everything to do with India. It's India's World Cup. It's the BCCI's World Cup, as we'll talk about later with Dan mm-hmm. Bredig. And if you're seen to be messing with the mainframe, it, you will pay a price. But still, uh, I think that it's a question that Nick Hockley has to answer and I'm sure that he will answer because Nick's an honourable man and he'll have this put to him in the fullness of time and he'll have to explain why it is good enough to play in this tournament when it wasn't right to play a bilateral series earlier in the year and, and that'll be um, that'll require some ethical gymnastics because the way I see it, if you've made the call back then, uh, you're duty-bound to stick by it now. There's no get-out-of-jail card. There's no rationalisation around it being an ICC event. It's, it's a moral question, not a financial one. Nothing's changed. Um, the broadcasters might uh, love it, you know, some controversy, something that they could um, <laughs> base hours and hours of um, chat show around on the day that that game was supposed to be played instead. So, you know, maybe there'd be, if there's money to be made out of it, they won't mind who makes what decision. Well, they won't lose much money off the gate. Um, so yeah. I know, actually, to be fair, Afghanistan games are um, attended in, in higher numbers in India, what we've seen so far in the tournament. But, you know, it's not as though they're selling out these grounds or anything. So, mm. yeah, there, there's um, maybe not the same compulsion on that front that there might be in a part of the world where people are coming in greater numbers and this World Cup's just not being well attended, full stop. Uh, a little bit of press release action from the ICC. Uh, we've been in, enjoying some of the fine work that's been coming <laughs> out from the, the comms copywriters of the world. Uh, and this one about a new partnership with a company called... A company? Uh, yeah, I'm clearly just channeling the name of, of this company, M Faces. Just the letter M followed by Faces, which does okay. remind me of... Wasn't there a... Um, there, was an, a there was an Australian rapper slash producer in the early 2000s in Melbourne called M Phases with a Z. So ahead of, ahead of his time, clearly, M Phases, who, who did some 
put together some sick beats, if I recall correctly, from maybe the late 90s through to whenever it was. Maybe M-Faces is still going. No disrespect if you're still cranking out the tunes. I'm just not familiar with your current oeuvre, um, but maybe that's something to catch up on. But this is M-Faces. The ICC says uh, the ICC reaches hundreds of millions of cricket fans through its digital platforms and has a relentless focus on being italics Fan first. <laughs> Got to get the italics in there. Yes. Fan first. That's why the tickets went on sale about five minutes before the World Cup started. And, and I've noticed various people online, when, when you mentioned the crowds getting stuck into the travelling supporters for not showing up, come oh. on. Come, how are you supposed to book flights, accommodation and get tickets to a game when they keep moving the dates of the thing and when the, the few, say, travelling Australians who I've run into out here have talked about the immense difficulty of even getting tickets to the matches, let alone actually getting into them, getting to the grounds and, and getting where they need to go. I'm pretty good at muting and blocking like crazy stuff on Twitter, but some I just let go because you want to just see what comes next. You can't wait to see what comes next. I had an example of this last night. It was in that theme there. You know, it's Australia's fault and Sri Lanka's fault. There was no one at that game yesterday, mm-hmm. according to this poster. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll let this run through with the replies that naturally come. And he cited next that, well, here's the proof. Nobody was at Dubai in 2021 to watch Australia and New Zealand in the final. I'm like, mate, mate. You couldn't leave Australia. There was a travel ban. It was the it was the, it was the pandemic. But no, I'll I'll leave him be. I'll see what comes mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So they they go on to say this, and let's try to figure this out. Uh, the men's cricket world cup will place those fans at the centre of the action, bringing them closer to the game than ever before through experiences on the ICC website and app, adopting technologies such as VR and Web three to reach new audiences. Okay, they don't actually say what that is going to entail, but that's just a vague statement. But the best bit is when, so this is from the emphasis mob themselves, when explaining who they are. Now, I use the word explain very loosely here. Here we go. Emphasis's purpose is to be the driver in a driverless car for global enterprises. Now, first of all, there is no driver in a driverless car. That is the fundamental premise of a driverless car. Indeed, the fundamental premise of any word with the suffix less on the end is that it is without that. It is less that. That, whatever that is, has been taken away. There is no driver in a driverless car. That is an interesting philosophical sort of position to take that we are going to be the thing that by definition does not exist. Is this nihilism in practice? I'm not sure. The driver in a driverless car for global enterprises by applying next generation design architecture and engineering services to deliver scalable and sustainable software and technology solutions. Okay, kind of sort of getting that, that's okay. Customer centricity, interesting, interesting linguistic creativity there is foundational to emphasis, reflected in our front-to-back transformation approach. Now, that's one word, front, number two, back, and it's trademarked. Uh, now, I'm, I'm sure that um, particularly the women listening to this show will know that front-to-back is the, the accepted method, the recommended method. That's the safe way to go. So I'm not <laughs> sure what this means in the emphasis context here, but front-to-back, good generally the the way that you should be doing these things. Front to back uses the exponential power of cloud and cognitive computing to provide a hyper-personalised C equals X2, C2 trademark equals one digital experience to clients and customers. Now that's a hyperlink, that, that equation there. And when I clicked that, it just said, page not found. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I feel sums up the entire uh, meaning of this particular sentence. The service transformation approach helps shrink the core through application of digital technologies across legacy environments within an enterprise, core reference architectures and tools, speed and innovation with domain expertise and specialisation, combined with an integrated sustainability and purpose-led approach across operations and solutions are key to building strong relationships with marquee clients. What the fuck (laughs) are you on about? What does any of that mean? Uh, These are words. They're all words that have a meaning, but they do not have a meaning put together in this way. What is happening? What I'm interested in is how do they get the funding to start the joint? I mean, you know, starting an organisation, like who are their clients? Who like Marquee clients. Indeed. Who's who's giving money to put this mob on a retainer? Yeah. who, Who reads that and thinks that's what I need? That's what I need to spend 20 grand a month to have that. Yeah. To support my enterprise. Yep, at my disposal. I, I just think marquee client means they've set up a marquee in some city square somewhere and then just have tried to just gull people <laughs> who want to buy. They're like, hey, would you like to be part of this enterprise? Our marquee clients are people who are stupid enough to come into our tent and sign their names on a piece of paper. Uh, Jeff, before we uh, take the first break on the show this week, we, we aren't uh, going to do Nerd Pledge per se because we don't have a Nerd Pledge number prepared as yet. We've got a big story time uh, in the offing for the weekend. We're recording this quite early in the week. You've got to check out of a hotel in about 40 minutes from now or something like that. This is just a, a challenge with time right now. But I think story time last week was pretty good. So if, mm-hmm. um, if that's of interest, I'll send you in that direction. Instead... I'm going to start via Nerd Pledge a new segment called Paddo Watch. James Pattinson is playing VSDCA, Subbies Cricket in Melbourne this summer for Oakley Cricket Club, who are a great club, produce lots of fabulous players. And one of our correspondents and one of our listeners, Thomas Miles, plays for Oakley, I think in the fourth 11, but he's going to keep an eye on this week to week for us and let us know how Paddo's getting on. So I assume this was the first round of the season. I would think it is they were playing Ormond I based on what I'm looking at here feels like they were playing Ormond at Ormond it's got a nice scoreboard there I've had some nice days out there over the journey Oakley batted first and made nine for 202 James Pattinson coming in at five 107 from 114 balls 13 fours and two sixes the top score so Pato got them to a, a credible tally they got it hauled down though (laughs) Ormond made nine for 206 and Pato did bowl bowl he did. He bowled second change. Nine overs, two maidens, three for 33. So that would have been a 45-over game. So I'm not quite sure what's happened there. But he, can, uh, he must be bowling off for a few paces. If he's bowling second change in the subbies, I don't think he's bowling as quickly as he would have been. But anyway, that's his first game in Oakley Colours. Uh, Thomas will keep an eye on that uh, and we'll, we'll track their their fortunes through the season. And and um, we'll try and get Pato on at some point. We had him on at Lords in 2019. He was a great guest talking about his back surgery and his return to the Aussie team. But I'd like to keep tabs on how he's going now on the way back down the pyramid as well. All right, let's take ourselves to a break. And after that, it will be Daniel Bredig and Anand Vasu. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, 
What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. Final Word Cricket Podcast. Got Dan Brennig with us as we teed up in the intro. His piece that he published uh, on uh, Sunday night went out on on Monday morning in the paper. He's the Chief Cricket Correspondent for The Age. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Good to be here. Uh, The hook to your piece uh, was Mickey Arthur saying at his press conference on Saturday night that it doesn't feel like an ICC event, the World Cup, at the moment. And this would was uh, the catalyst for you to tie together a number of threads that you've been looking into going all the way back to uh, when we were in India earlier this year for the Border Gavaskar Trophy? Yeah, well, it, um, uh, the thing that kind of stood out to me when we were in India in March, and particularly when we were in Ahmedabad for the fourth test, was how little, even at that stage, we knew about how the World Cup was going to go ahead we knew it was being held in India, and that was about all we knew. And mm. as I was to discover upon crossing paths with quite a few uh, cricket officials during that test match, that was about all they knew as well. And it was all kind of being left up to the BCCI. So it's kind of from that point that we knew that it wasn't quite going to be the event that we, I guess, become useful, uh, sorry, used to in global cricket events. Mm. Uh, and really, if you think back to the last couple of world 50 over World Cups prior to that in Australia in 2015 and England in 2019, those events had been, in terms of the fixtures anyway, all of that had been well known about 18 months prior to the first ball. So we're really in very different territory here. So, yeah, a lot of us have reflected on that over the last six or seven months, the disorganisation and so on. But what stood out from your piece is, you, you know, you've done the work, right? You've made the phone calls. You've got this extra layer of deta- level of detail, rather, that, that floats through, including a, a little vignette about the, the pre-game that wasn't or wasn't broadcast, at least, for the India-Pakistan game at Ahmedabad over the weekend. Can you just sort of share that story and how you got to the bottom of that? Yeah, well, it, it, it's really about, um, ultimately, about communication and about, uh, the, the way of the world these days with hosting global events. Generally, those events have a local organising committee, whether it's the Olympic Games or a World Cup in any form of, of sport. And that local organising committee serves as the link between the local association or board and the global body that's running it and is also a you know, really key link between all those organisations and the broadcasters who've got the rights to the event. In terms of 
this World Cup, obviously there wasn't really an opening ceremony to speak of before the first game between England and New Zealand. There was a bit of curiosity and consternation about that, so what, what's what's going on exactly. Uh, there also wasn't one for India's first game in Chennai against Australia on the, the first Sunday of the event. And um, so by the t- time we'd gotten to India versus Pakistan, we're well into the tournament. And... Uh, it turned out that a big event was being planned for that game, but no one other than the BCCI knew that that was happening until a few days beforehand. Now, for any event of that kind, and I'm thinking back to, gosh, even um, uh, some of our listeners might remember the 1996 World Cup started with a quite glitzy opening ceremony at Eden Gardens in Kolkata. Any event like that where there's a lot of colour and movement, light and sound, songs in particular, there need to be permissions for those songs to be broadcast. And sometimes that costs quite a bit of money, depending on what the songs are. In this case, there was a lot of music planned for this ceremony, this festivity, and no advance warning that these songs were going to be on the program or that there was going to be any event at all. And so there was no time to figure out who was going to pay for the permissions to broadcast those songs. It wasn't in the budgets of the broadcasters. It wasn't in the budgets of the ICC. It wasn't something I think that the BCCI had sort of catered for as a as a as a concept or an issue that needed to be tackled. Mm. And so ultimately, that celebration, which was meant to sort of showcase Indian talent, Indian songs, Bollywood songs to the world, wasn't broadcast. Now that seems to me to be pretty bizarre, given how much, as we both know, broadcasting of cricket and broadcasting events around cricket seems to um, determine a lot of decisions that are made these days. I said last week there's almost like a lack of joy with this tournament so far compared to previous World Cups with the expectation and anticipation we normally have, then the World Cup begins and we're transfixed by what's going on in the middle. Do you feel like that's been lacking a little bit as well so far? And maybe that's related to a resigned acceptance that the most important component to this tournament is ultimately whether India does well or not and whether they go on to win it. Yeah, well, I, I guess you've got to contrast this tournament with the 2011 event, the the last 50 over World Cup that was held in this part of the world. And that event was, what was it, three years into what you call the IPL era. We're a long, long way further into that. The economics of cricket are changing. Obviously, the political scene in India has changed a lot. And so, yeah, we've, we've had quite a lot of time now of real kind of hyper-focus on cricket in India being about the Indian cricket team and about the IPL franchises. And so... I guess that global imperative or that global interest in terms of, you know, getting neutral uh, fans into the country, mm. getting good crowds at, at all matches is, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it just hasn't been a focus. And so that means that, yeah, the, uh, the, I suppose you'd say the, the scenes that we have witnessed for this tournament stand very much in contrast to just, world events in other sports and particularly the uh, Rugby Union World Cup that's obviously being held concurrently where we're seeing huge crowds for neutral matches. Yeah, that's right. I felt that over the weekend too. It's sort of been uh, the case throughout the course of the Rugby World Cup. It's also a gutsy piece of journalism here with India being the centre of the cricketing universe and 
uh, you being as critical as you have been, including looking at wider topics like people being denied entry to India for the tournament. But presumably you've written this with eyes wide open about how this might make your life more difficult in the future. Uh, I think that it's, look, whoever it is and whatever country it is, there needs to be an ability for, you know, for for that country, that that country's uh, cricket body to be able to stand up to some criticism and some critical eye that borders between the doable and the close to impossible, depending on the country and depending on where things sort of sit in the wider scheme of things, whether what's going on politically in that country or, you know, how much pressure that particular board is feeling for various reasons, whether it's broadcast negotiations or, or what have you. But yeah, it should be a, you know, should be a fundamental kind of right of of, of coverage of cricket that we're not just here to uh, write about how great the World Cup is alone. We are here to uh, apply a critical lens to things. And yeah, and in this case, this was certainly not a uh, uh, a hot take in the sense of uh, me just deciding that this was what I felt. This was a result of quite a lot of reporting and talking to people over over a period of time and as we uh, started the conversation dating back to uh, March when we were both in Ahmedabad. And of course with you Dan having been a cricket journalist for the better part of two decades this comes from a, a place of love and care for the sport and we know the direction of travel with 50 over cricket specifically will be about these set piece events especially the World Cup so this needs to be successful and if it's not if the crowd numbers remain poor and the wider interest modest it, it wouldn't have ticked the most important box of all being a celebration of the game and instead it'll end up as a missed opportunity. Yeah look I retain a, a sense of optimism for how the rest of the tournament will go just on the basis that invariably a, a global event, no matter how sort of shambolically organised, tends to be saved by the players, by the practitioners, by there being some, uh, you know, vibrant contests between bat and ball, some upsets, as we saw obviously Afghanistan yep. beating England the other night. And, yeah, also ultimately the the glorious uncertainty of sport. And so there's every chance that this tournament will still give us some great things to remember it by. But in terms of what I wrote about the opportunity lost, it's about the opportunity lost for people to make plans to come and see it. Mm. Um, And that was really something that was getting lost by the time, you know, basically by the time 2022 had turned into 2023 and there was no prospect of seeing plans or schedules or ticket arrangements for the tournament anytime soon, that opportunity was already being lost. So we're not just talking about events of the last few days, we're talking about events of probably the last two years. All right, Dan Brodig, you keep doing your thing, making your calls, writing your stories, and we'll have you back on The Final Word soon, I'm sure. Thanks again. I've got Anand Vasu with me, who is an esteemed Indian cricket writer. He's been on this beat for a really long time. He's seen pretty much everything. Uh, and he's published a, a piece in the Economic Times uh, that he's covering this World Cup for called A Valuable Proportion of Indian you know, India's Cricket Spectatorship Has Something Unsavoury in Its Kit. Uh, Anand, uh, thanks for joining The Final Word. We thought we'd get you on uh, to talk about what you saw at the India-Pakistan game uh, the other day. Where you start your piece, though, is back in 1999, in a very different world, a very different time, I suppose, in, in relation to India and Pakistan. First of all, welcome to you. And can you give a sense of why you thought you'd start with going back in time to describe relations between the countries then from a cricketing perspective? 
Well, because the uh, you know this the, the relationship between the two countries has been changing constantly. It's not one that's uh, you know fixed. It's not quite like the ashes rivalry that was you know uh, set up many many years ago. It kind of follows uh, a similar trajectory over the years. India Pakistan is, is is very dynamic on the field, off the field. And one of the things that has changed quite a lot is that the players have gotten a lot more friendly in recent times. Mm-hmm. Players have gotten a lot more close. While the fans seem to have become more polarized at both ends, and India doesn't play Pakistan bilaterally, which means you know India doesn't go to Pakistan, Pakistan doesn't come to India, apart from World Cups and then the occasional Asia Cup tournament in some neutral venue. So the fans also, I, th- I, I think, you know, there's a lot of anticipation, there's a lot of build up, but they've also got very, very polarized in recent times. So this polarisation that we experienced and saw on television and saw reports of, indeed the Pakistan Cricket Board have made a complaint about uh, about the crowds at the Ahmedabad Stadium on Saturday. Where you begin is where it, it has an Indian audience giving a Pakistani team a round of applause as they made their way doing a lap of honour after defeating India. I mean, that, that would be inconceivable now, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Um, uh, well, also, you know, to be fair, the experience that Pakistan has had in different cities during this World Cup has been very different. Uh, when they got to Hyderabad, where they did not play India, um, they got a fairly good welcome, right from the airport where the fans were cheering them on, to the hotels, to the grounds. They seemed to be quite warmly received. In Ahmedabad, it was very, very different. One reason for that, of course, was that they were playing India. But I think it's, it, it's if you scratch the surface, there's more to it than that. I hope that Pakistan will get a better response in uh, other parts of the country, like Bangalore and Chennai, where they play. But um, in Ahmedabad, certainly, this was um, like beyond anything that anyone expected. Well, perhaps one shouldn't be shocked, but when it actually did happen, uh, it was not pretty. Take the experience of someone like Mohammad Siraj. And look, we, we made this observation when we were there for the test series with Mohammad Shami uh, running into bowl from, uh, you know, from the end where the dignitaries were in the test match earlier this year, but specifically Siraj having started poorly and then copying all this abuse online, it being linked to like what's going on in, in the Middle East at the moment. And, you know, this feels like from the outside looking in, I'm purely an observer in this, of course, that that kind of hostility, that kind of, um, that kind of gratuitous abuse is is now uh, de rigueur, and it's just uh, every time that these countries play, it, it seems to be um, priced into the thinking. It is. It's um, see the thing is with, with with what happens online, you never know what is organic and what is being whipped up. I mean, a lot of it mm. is being whipped up by uh, so called troll farms and uh, you know people who are looking to stoke these things. There are people seeding these. Uh, really vile, uh, I call them discussions, but uh, arguments and, and just attacks on certain individuals on uh, Twitter and, and so on. Uh, some of it is, it, 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 it often begins there, but then gathers a life of its own because there are people who want to say some very nasty things, most of them anonymous, and uh, this is the occasion and the chance and they go for it. You said that you were there and uh, this is not just a case of a few rotten apples, but you were witnessing it with your own eyes out in the crowd, the way that Pakistan players were being targeted by uh, members of the underbug crowd on the Saturday. I mean, when you were witnessing this, did you make it, was it clear in your mind you were going to write about this? Because I know we had Dan Brady on earlier about a piece he wrote for The Age and I described that as like gutsy journalism. This is next level gutsy journalism in a way, writing a piece that's so strident in its uh, perspective, knowing that you're going to cop it too. Well, um, 
I actually didn't quite know what to make of it when I saw it. Uh, the first, my first reaction was just disappointment when I was in, when I went out into the stands and, you know, because it could have been a great occasion, 100,000 people or more. We still haven't got an official number on how many people were there. A grand spectacle, one of cricket's biggest contests in the World Cup. I mean, it, it could have been a massive uh, celebration of cricket. It could have been a massive occasion for everyone who was there. But that's not the feeling that you got. It Instead of it being like this big cricket spectacle, it became something else. It became uh, a chance for a lot of angry, perhaps disgruntled Indians to uh, show their displeasure against some Pakistani cricketers, which it, it, it felt, I felt genuinely intimidated when I was in the stands. I haven't really felt that before anywhere else. And so I didn't, I didn't want to write about it initially and that it was too, it was too close to home at, at that moment, which is why I gave it a day. And, and, you know, having thought about it, having spoken to a few people, then I realized that there was no way I could not write about it. I had to write about it, having been there and witnessed it. Because there's some, there are some things that you see on television and there are some things that you don't. 3.5 crore people apparently watched this match online, but uh, they would not have seen what I did, and which is why I had to, uh, I couldn't not write about it. I mean, you, you pose an interesting question here towards the end of your piece. You, you refer to the extraordinary growth story that is India, you know, the stunning feats of engineering and medicine, IT, uh, you say even landed on the dark side of the moon, but as a people, have we progressed or fallen? I mean, is this something that you've grappled with? It obviously isn't just about last last Saturday, but more broadly in recent times that India at once is experiencing this extraordinary surge, but at the same time, it's uh, there, there are other things going on concurrently. Well, certainly, uh, I think, uh, you know, in India, it's easy to, politicians take credit for all the good that happens. And uh, the people find someone to blame for all the bad that happens. Very rarely do we look inwards and see what we can do better or uh, whether we've, uh, whether we're, you know, helping growth, whether we're help, whether we're part of the success story or we're actually in the way of it. Mm. I think as people, we've allowed ourselves to be, uh, led by people, by politicians who perhaps don't have the best intentions. Uh, we've allowed ourselves to be divided by people who want very little beyond our votes. I think, uh, you know, the, the time has come to actually take a step back and think, uh, look, take a hard look at ourselves and see if we are doing uh, the best we possibly can. The extent to which religion feeds into this is a question you ask in your piece as well. To quote from it, cricket once used to be a religion in India, but now religion is sweeping through cricket in India. It's, it's where you leave it as a, a pondering thought, I suppose. But um, is, is that something that's more detectable now as an Indian man living in that country where the religion inside cricket and the fandom of cricket is different to the way it was experienced 20 or 30 years ago? Absolutely. It's very, very different now than it was even 15, 20 years ago. I mean, we've always had cricketers of different religions be a part of the Indian team. Be a part of the Indian level. We've had Hindus, Sikhs, uh, Muslims, Christians. So, so it, it was being a cricketer kind of overruled all of that. Being an India cricketer mm. meant that uh, religion did not ma- matter to either community, either co- any any of the communities. In that sense, you were a cricketer first, you were an Indian next, and then you were a Muslim or a Hindu. But I don't seem to get that sense anymore, especially the manner in which you know people like Siraj and Shami are targeted, the way they are copying it, 
just for a few bad overs even it's not been like someone's mm-hmm. done something mm-hmm. particularly not like they've evaded taxes or you know uh, committed crimes <laughs> or anything it's just more badly and then the way they are targeted it's just um, leaves such a bad taste in the mouth and like i said it's not just a few uh, few rotten apples it's 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 a trend you can see it as soon as something starts going bad for siraj or shami then there's a big pile on onto them you, you can sense that online, but it also feels like when it's called out or when it's reflected upon, like, for example, the response to your piece yesterday, it attracts a, a second wave of criticism or, or indeed abuse. I saw some horrible things said about you in, in, in the comments yesterday from uh, people questioning your patriotism and saying, well, you can't maintain a critical uh, perspective uh, the way that you have and still be an Indian patriot. That must frustrate you as someone who's, you know, done a great job promoting the, the, the country of your birth throughout the course of your time in journalism. And by that, I don't mean like parochial following the cricket team, but telling the story of India more widely. Well, it's, it, it all, it's all coming from the same place. It's, 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 the, it's the same beast. And if you're not feeding it, then, then you're going to get attacked by it. So I, I'm used to it. Sometimes when you, anything but unabashed praise is considered anti-national and not patriotic. There's a lot of flaws in my country, as there are in yours and every single one around the world. And uh, sometimes when you point these out, there are people who get offended. There are people who think that my sole job is to promote India as if I was an advertising professional for India, which I am not. (laughs) So when there are things that I see in my country, in my city, in my state, in my sport that I don't like, or that I find alarming, or then I will raise those alarm bells. I mean, it's my job to do so. And of course, uh, I cop the backlash when it happens. We've been pondering the question on the podcast the last couple of weeks, and I should note we're recording this the morning after the Netherlands have knocked off South Africa. When I spoke to Dan, it was before that game, but I, I, I posed to him, is there a bit of a lack of joy, you know, in this tournament so far? Are we experiencing uh, a seven-week period in time that we may not look back on too fondly. I mean, from where you sit, from your perspective, very much covering the tournament, do you detect that as well, that this compared to other World Cups you've been at doesn't have that that same energy about it quite yet? I think certainly the start of the tournament, that buzz was missing. Because I remember the 2011 World Cup, the last one at home in India, jointly Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, at home. And there was a real uh, buzz about it well before the tournament began and kind of just took off and, and sustained all the way through. We're not quite seen that here. We've seen disappointing crowds at certain venues. We've seen a few one-sided games. It's it's not had that fever pitch that the 2011 World Cup had, but I think it's warming up quite nicely. And it's a long tournament, so I don't think you could sustain that kind of buzz over a like near two-month period. But I think now with results, like you said, with um, Netherlands beating South Africa, with Afghanistan beating England, there is certainly uh, a bit more uh, talk around the traps. Yeah, it feels like there's more jeopardy. And, and just in closing, the news point out of yesterday was that uh, the PCB have, have formally written to the ICC uh, in relation to both their journalists not getting in and the treatment of their players at Ahmedabad the other day. Do you think anything will come uh, out of those, uh, I suppose, those criticisms of the PCB and wanting some action taken? I suspect the ICC has a quite large filing cabinet in which they put complaints of this sort. I don't think anything will quite get done about it. The complaint will be formally registered. They will acknowledge that a complaint was made, but I can't see anything coming up. 
And Advasu, you're a brilliant writer, a fantastic analyst on the game and on, on the wider picture in India. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your contribution. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, I'm Natalie Jumanis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word, the weekly show with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the show that's uh, supposed to be not about the World Cup but has been in almost entirely about the World Cup. <laughs> Let us continue to something that isn't the World Cup, which is the Mr Sheffield Shield. Yeah. Uh, another round was played out. Uh, the Victorians got absolutely hammered again. They went up to Mackay, um, up the coast of Queensland, made 253. Matt Short came back and made 100, which was exciting, um, particularly at that sort of period of the, the World Cup where Zampa was bowling badly and people were starting to say, well, should they have held on to some spinning all-rounders? What might happen? Is Travis Head going to be the main bowler for Australia or all the rest of it? Sure, he made a, a ton. Nobody else made more than 37 three wickets for Sandu, two each for Swepson, Wildermuth and Steckity, and then Queensland piled on 501 for nine. Matthew Renshaw, hello, 135. And Jack Clayton, who Louis Cameron was talking about last week, made 100. And nine, so yeah, the the old. Uh, it's it's interesting that like there's still this thing where Marcus Harris is is the reserve bat travelling around with the Test team, but people just assume it will be Bancroft or Renshaw who will come in as opener when Warner goes at Sydney. Look, it's it's a really important month for Renshaw, and yeah, making the century here. Siddle had a huge shout for league before when Renshaw shouldered arms early in his stay, but it was given not out, and he made the most of that. The other man in that five oh one was Michael Nisa. He made ninety, oh, yeah. batting down at number eight. So I think that. He's averaging, I think I'm right in saying, 92 across his last 10 first-class innings or something wild like that. His last five, had he made 100 there, it would have been four tonnes in five innings in first-class cricket. So that that comment that Usman Khawaja made last week after their first round draw where he said, well, look, he's the Chris Wokes of Australian cricket – at yep. the moment, he is. And England find room for Chris Wokes at home. I think... At the moment, he's better with the bat than Chris Wokes. Well, sure. But, I mean, the the the, the, the summer ahead, five mm. test matches that are, I wouldn't say off-Broadway. The Pakistan test will have a bit of venom. The Windies ones won't, unfortunately. I, I would love the Windies to be competitive. They're not going to be competitive. They're going to be two test matches that are resolved over three to three and a half days. I think Nisa deserves another shot at home. And... How they work that through with rotations and so on is yet to be seen. But as a yep. bowling all-rounder, genuinely, I think he must play. He's only 33. He'll be 33 throughout the summer as well. Doesn't turn 34 until, I think, early next year, something like that. Anyway, but yeah, huge first innings lead. Perry took three wickets for Victoria but was expensive. Siddle, two for 87 from 32 in his first game. Back in the baggy blue, Cameron McClure, three for 86 with his medium paces. But then Victoria was steamrolled. Hi, I'm actor Cameron McClure. You might remember me from such futile (laughs) second innings efforts as three for 86. Ouch. I did wonder whether he's related to Mark McClure. It's not in his his bio, though. Victoria was steamrolled for 144 second time. Hanscom top scored with 43 and... Hot Toddy made 40, but nothing else. Swepson, 5 for 39, including three wickets in one over to really open up Victoria there. Steckity, two more. Nisa, 1 for 18 from 11. Very Michael Nisa figures to, to finish off the game. But, yeah, Queensland on top. Victoria, two heavy losses. They've lost by in innings to WA at home and now by an innings and plenty to, to Queensland as well up in Mackay. So they're desperate to get home. They played New South Wales. I think it's at the G next week. So that's the only game that's been solved or resolved so far. We're three out of four days into New South Wales and South Australia, but that's largely done. Stumps day three at Adelaide Oval. 
the Sackers made 293 in the first innings. Tremaine took four. Bird took three. Moses Henriquez took two. So the old boys delivering with the ball for the Blues, but they only made 183. Nathan McAndrew, five for 42. He took wickets last week as well. Um, Agar, Wes of the Wes Variety, a couple. Harry Conway, good recruit, took two. Mm. Then South Australia make 212 the second time. Nathan McSweeney, so the other Nathan Mc in the South Australian team, made an even century, 100 out of mm. 212, which is probably match winning because New South Wales have been set 323 and then 99 for six overnight. Nathan McAndrew, again, after five in the first innings, he's got four of those already, so he could take 11, 12, 13 for the match. And that's a yeah really strong response from South Australia after they lost to Tassie uh, in round one. Can they get Nathan McCullum involved? Can they get him over in a coaching <laughs> capacity or something like that just to just to bolster the Nathan Merc? It's Nathan McAndrews, the one that Louis reckons is a is a play for Australia shout in a couple of years, yep. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, he, he played some championship cricket over the year this year as well, so he's getting that that body of work together. Yeah, th- th- there'll be others. Are there any other Nathan Mooks that we know of from? Um, the sporting world. I'm not sure. Speaking of Tassie, Jeff, who beat South Australia in round one, they're, they're playing in Perth and they're halfway through their game against WA. Yes, Tasmania 439 in their first innings um, and WA 406 for six in theirs. So um, you would think that that one's headed for a draw as they, they're going into day three. So what have we got? Jordan Silk made 181 for Tassie batting first. Matthew Wade still doing the business, um, keeping and made 51. Bo Webster made 64. Wickets shared around for WA. Lance Morris, two for 55. Will be of interest. Corey Orochicioli, mm. your fave, three for 144. Bolt a lot of overs, 39 of them. The spinner. And then Sam Whiteman, massive ton for WA, 188 opening the batting. Bancroft <laughs> made 91, so nearly another for him. And Aaron Hardy, who's had a little bit of Australia flirtation in recent times, 56 from 85 balls down the order. So they'll be resuming uh, not far behind Tassie's first innings score. We're on Lawrence Neil Smith. Watch hasn't taken yes. a wicket as yet. None for 64 off 19. Been economical. A couple of wickets for Gabe Bell and Jared Freeman. One for Webster. But it looks like a batting track over there at the a Western Australian Cricket Association ground where, my God, we saw a lot of flatties in, in their last few attempts at international cricket. Sam Whiteman only deals in tons and ducks, doesn't he? Was it seven ducks last year in a Shield season to mm. equal the most ever or most ever for WA, but made like 500s as well. It, it, that played out as well when at North Hants where he was captaining half the time at Wantage Road in, in the Aussie winter and back at it now with a, a century. I think he made a duck last week, so that... Boom or bust career that he's having. Bancroft 91, that's noteworthy. I think Aaron Hardy's going to play for Australia like properly quite soon too. He's a very good player. Player of the Shield final two years ago. Enjoyed some success with Surrey last year in, in a really tense setting and where he won a game for them at Scarborough. Just strikes me as the kind of guy who like they'll find room for. When there's a bunch of retirements, they'll go right. Another guy who primarily is a batsman who can bowl a bit, that's useful. Um, yeah. So um, I, I don't. I don't think it'll be long before. I think he's twenty three or twenty four. Um, yeah, that production line there at Western Australia, other side of the country. Australia's women defeated the West Indies women in the third and final one day at the junction after the second was rained out. Not sure if you saw this, Jeff, but the players had to help with the covers 
<laughs> During the second game, there weren't enough ground staff to keep them down there at the Juno. But that got rained off. Then the sun came out, one of those really annoying days that we know and love in Melbourne. The third one day was on Saturday. It was almost a replica of the game at Brisbane the previous weekend. The Windies all out 103 in just 32 overs. They uh, bowled out for 25, I think, at AB Field. Uh, Haley Matthews, 23, but that's broadly it. Rashada Williams, the keeper, made 25. With the ball, usual suspects. Kim Gath, two for 15. Lana King, two for 20. Annabelle Sutherland, three for 23. Talia McGrath, two for 10. Georgia Warren, one for 17. Like every single time when they get going, they just squeeze with these bowlers. Like a, they hunt in a pack, don't they? They all get involved. They all get a yep. bowl. They all take wickets. Interesting to hear from Kim Gath after the win saying she wants to be the spearhead across formats now. She's, you know, played enough for the Aussies in the last 18 months or so and, and she, it's, it, you know, she wants this to be her team. And you look at her one-day stats so far for Australia, 10 wickets at 14, going at just 3.2 and over. And, you know, she's 27. You'd expect that'll be when she plays her best cricket. Anyway, Australia chased it down in 15.3 overs, Litchfield, Perry, Healy, Mooney, you know, the four batters used all, all making runs and, and all doing as you'd expect them to do. Uh, Jeff, we had the WBBL launch this week. Yeah, well, cu- curious here that they were they had the launch. They put Elise Perry up as the figurehead to do the launch and they're also banning her for the first game of the season yes. for slow overrates from last season. So that's really hot stuff for the, you know, to use your marquee players. Apparently the TV networks were <laughs> trying to negotiate that away. She should have made James Faulkner captain. Obvious, that was the obvious solution <laughs> to this problem was just switch out the captaincy so you don't get pinged for it. But, yeah, it'll be up and away. There'll, it will suffer from uh, competition with the World Cup. Cup, the men's 50 over World Cup as it did the men's 20 over World Cup a year ago. Um, frustrating. They had all that. Let's set aside an October-November window for mm. it and then ICC tournaments keep being put in that window and will continue to be. So that's less than ideal. But, you know, the, the, the salaries are up. Some players are making 100 grand to play in the WBBL. It's changed a lot since 2015 when it first started off and, and when when we were first doing cute little podcasts, um, doing wraps of WBBL rounds and previews for seasons and all the rest of it. I think from memory in the first season, was it was it 12 grand was the highest salary or maybe it was, yeah, it, it, was it was in the right. low teens. Maybe, maybe 15. 15 and yeah, 100 grand for six weeks works, pretty good going no matter what competition it is around the world. And I know Alex yeah, well, Blackwell, to, who... You, you do have to train the other 10 months of the year to be able to do it, which oh, is... No, of course, of course. But, miss. but the expectation is, is that you'll be already absorbed within a state system, right? Or, or an international player. So you're already doing that work automatically. It's not like you're just dropping in yeah. from club cricket. And then sure. for the... This is the, you know, the cream on top, I suppose, for a lot of state cricketers who have a contract which has been improved dramatically across the last two MOU cycles and... Yeah, chatting with Alex Blackwell at Fair Break about this. She's the list manager for the uh, for the Thunder. So like, it's just totally different now. Like the way you can manage the money and and manage the assets. It's probably more like being a list manager at an AFL club than you know what it was before when you're trying to convince players to prioritise cricket above other things. Now it's um, now it's uh, you know far bigger bickies. And yeah, Elise Perry, interesting comments from her at that media event saying the next step for them, it's not really a money conversation anymore. It's a, it's a spectator's thing. She wants to see right. bigger crowds at bigger venues. And fair enough, right? Like we, it, And it seems realistic. Over here with women's football, and Jeff, I'm sure you've been tapped into this, like extraordinary, the Women's Super League and how many, um, how many more people are watching it on telly, but the crowds as well. There was 50,000 people watching Arsenal's women last week. 
that's serious. Like that's big numbers, right? And and it's a different kind of audience. I was on the tube going past Arsenal on Sunday afternoon, and much as it is with women's cricket, there uh, the, the profile's different. It's not just blokes going. Of course, it's not. It's 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 families. It's girls. It's women who are making the choice to follow the women's team. And yeah, hopefully the WBBL it does okay for crowds. You know, it, it it's not a bad not a bad product uh, by any stretch for getting people through the gate. But, you know, getting to the point where they're getting comparable crowds to the men feels like a realistic objective in the next few years. And Perry's stated that in, in the press event mm. a couple of days ago. Yeah, the, the one big difference I think you've got with football is that there's such a legacy of the, the, the long-term existence of those clubs and mm. so much frustration at, like, basically, unless you're one of the, the clubs owned by a Petro state, you're not going to be able to win the Premier League, it's just not going to happen. But if you split it up, if you have the women's team as well, you double your chances of potentially winning something. If you're an Arsenal supporter, you might yep. see your women's team win the league. You've got that possibility to have that enjoyment, you know, the the way that, like, I'm sure it would be hugely meaningful for a St Kilda supporter to see their AFLW team win, given their men's team has had so little success over the years. Um, you don't have that legacy with the, the franchises, the T20 franchises. Yeah, they've been around for what, 12 years or whatever it is, um, the, the men's teams. But uh, unless you were six years old when it started, there, there, aren't, there are some, but there aren't a huge amount of like rusted on Melbourne Renegades fans or whatever it is. And the ones who are, are 21 or 22 because they got captured as kids and they've been in there since the beginning. So that is the, the disadvantage that you have with trying to get people to franchise cricket. But they did such a good job with that World Cup in 2020, you'd have to think that there's there's got to be a fair bit of headroom at least to, to start getting more people down to the games, which is, is based on promotion, scheduling and location. So the WBBL means there's no WNCL now until the middle of December. Just to recap where that's been over the last week or so, uh, Tasmania had a comfortable victory over the ACT with Molly Strano taking a forfer. The Vicks played Queensland twice. In the first of those games, Queensland made 263 for seven and they bowled out Victoria for 98. So Victoria have had a, a bad run of things um, against Queensland in both men's and women's cricket. Georgia Redmayne and Grace Harris, uh, friend of the show, made 60s. Then Courtney Grace Sipple, great name, took four for 15 for Queensland with the ball, playing a second time. Victoria all out 167 and Queensland chased that down to win by three wickets. Of note there that Meg Lanning made 73 not out out of the 167. Grace Sipple took four more, but Courtney, Courtney Grace Sipple, sorry, took took four more. But um, yes, the, the Lanning line in the score sheet there is um, noteworthy, Jeff, because, well, I think all eyes are on when she'll make her return to the Aussie side and indeed whether she'll be captain upon her return. Yeah, yeah, and um, that's exactly the kind of run out that she wants, aside from the, the team doing badly, her being able to make runs under pressure. So, some fun for Amanda Wellington as well. Uh, 73 off 58 balls mm. at number eight for South Australia as they smashed up WA and then she took three for 37, so all-round game. And, and her batting has been more of a threat increasingly as her career has gone on started as a leg spinner and is now learning how to bat who knew <laughs> never happened before will never happen again um, and then WA won by three wickets chasing 258 Bridget Patterson 102 Courtney Webb 96 not out for South Australia but Chloe Paparo 104 mm. that stands out to me she's been always been talented but been a big underachiever for WA for years and has managed to keep getting a gig she's leading the WNCL for runs so far this season 231 in four innings so if this could be the summer of Chloe Paparo I would be 
very happy to see her finally flourish at the top level. You know, she dominates a level down but hasn't been able to do it at the, the top domestic level. Yeah, and she's the captain over in WA now as well, which shows the faith that they're putting in her and Courtney Webb second on that list, Lanning third, Patterson fourth. So, And on wickets, which I've also noted down here, Courtney Gracehipple has got 13, then, uh, yeah, it sort of drops away. 13 is the standout figure on, on that chart for Queensland there who took a bag of four on a couple of occasions against Victoria. And as far as the table is concerned, Queensland are three and one, leading the way on 15 points. South Australia in second spot. West Australia third, then Tasmania, New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT who the Meteors play in this tournament. 17 comp there, but they're yet to register a win. Of note, the Victoria haven't registered a win either, um, sitting in six spots. So they'll play the next round of games. I think it's on the 13th of December after the BBL, which starts on this weekend, I'm pretty sure. Jeff, is that right? It should. Yeah, that's that's when it'll be coming up. Yeah. Um, I haven't nailed in the opening date um, into my mind yet. <laughs> You've got other things on. going on in this part of the world. There is a bit on at the moment and there will be very shortly because I'll be out the door in a few minutes. But a, a quick note that the, the Olympics deal is sealed. It has been signed off. It's been formally ratified by the IOC on Monday, Los Angeles 2028. So there'll be a T20 World Cup in October of 2028 in Australia, but there'll be an Olympics tournament presumably in August-ish when it usually is in LA. Baseball, softball is back. Flag football is in. Lacrosse mm. is in. Squash is in. And, and amongst those big players, cricket is in. It is six teams, as I floated last week, that it wouldn't be eight. It'd only be six. So you've got a 50-50 chance of a medal if you make it in. It'll be the top five ranked probably on the world rankings, T20 teams plus the USA team because the host country always gets an entry. So, you know, they've got a fair bit of work to do to be competitive between now and 2028. But there'll be there'll be a big audience for it. There'll be medals on the line and, um, you know, it, it's... It's a step, not not just for the six teams in the finals, but all the other teams who can now access funding as an Olympic sport. And all the cynics will, will say, well, why bother? Well, you know, three billion reasons to bother. That's the audience that's been cited for an Olympic Games. That, that's just massive, right? And the NOC money that we've talked about before, way beyond the six countries that will be involved, regardless of how many that end up there from Olympiad to Olympiad. Brisbane 2032 feels guaranteed it'll be in that tournament or that fortnight as well and you know it'll be at ab field i saw some speculation that they won't be able to use the gabba as the olympic stadium now no like that that's that's not this will be at ab field and that's fine like you know they will put up temporary stands if needs be that's always the way during olympic games temporary facilities are a part of making the olympic world go round. then mumbai 2036 which was always the the long-term plan here for the IOC. This session of the IOC, the 141st, was held in Mumbai and um, uh, uh, the Prime Minister Modi has made very strong comments over the weekend that they'll do anything, whatever it takes, to get the Olympics to Mumbai in 2036. So it feels like it's not just about getting them there for LA in five years from now. It's They're going to get sort of three bites of the cherry at a minimum. Mm. And, and if it works, then, then great. But it'll get a nice run up because, um, yeah, two cricketing, existing cricketing countries, not to discount America, but two cricketing giants, if you like, in Australia and, and India following in, in 32 and 36. Yeah, so at least a, a well, an eight-year span, I suppose, from yeah. the first. But there'll, there'll be a lead-up, so maybe you, you get more like 10, 12 years out of it and then hopefully it can be entrenched enough that it, it stays in the Olympics 
after 2036 and maybe gets expanded in terms of the teams it'd be nice to see more than six teams competing although that is logistically difficult just given how long cricket takes and, and having pitches available and grounds available but uh, they should be able to find some cricket grounds in Mumbai at the very least I think that's us that is the final word it has been the final word it will continue to be the final word next time we release an episode which will be soon because they keep on coming out if you've listened to this one all the way through bless your heart if you want to help us make the show and keep on doing it patron dot com slash the final word is where you can join up with what we're doing get involved with our online community and all the rest of that anything else to say before we wave goodbye no just to say that uh, our online community has been flourishing of late so uh, patreon.com forward slash the final word as you say and help underpin the, the work that we're doing producing daily shows every day still making story time and, and that'll continue and um, there's a lot more coming this summer of course once we get back to Australia together and uh, yeah big few months so uh, thanks to those who are already there and great to have those who've been dropping in for a visit over the last couple of weeks since the World Cup started so it's been the final word we'll see you very very soon so you know what I meant here I had to go about